I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, can I help you find something? Librarians specialize in helping you find what you were looking for and sometimes what you didn't know you were looking for. Thank you for joining me as I talk to my guests about all things library, including the books inside them. I'm Julie Chavez, and this is Ask a Librarian. Friends, it's Banned Books Week. I say it with enthusiasm, but the reality is that book banning is a growing and extremely concerning trend that's worthy of our attention and action. Today, I'm talking to Jonathan Friedman from PEN America, an organization at the forefront of the efforts against book banning. Jonathan is the Director of Free Expression and Education Programs, and he oversees research, advocacy, and education related to academic freedom, educational gag orders, book bans, and general free expression in school, colleges, and universities. I speak with Jonathan about this in the episode, but this is something we should all be paying attention to. Book banning is a symptom of a censorious climate that's increasingly intolerant of discomfort, discussion, and disputes, all of which can be part of a respectful, healthy discourse. We need friction and discomfort to grow, and books are part of that mission. So this week, support your librarians, your teachers, and those who know the value of speaking honestly about America's past, its present, and its future. If you'd like more information, you can visit Penn's website at penn.org. Here is my conversation with Jonathan. Jonathan, thanks so much for being with me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, happy to be here. Well, and I know we just spoke before we started recording that next week is Banned Books Week. So when this episode comes out next Thursday, we will be in the midst of Banned Books Week. So it's a perfect time to talk about Penn America and the mission and what you do there. So thanks again for joining me for that. Yeah, absolutely. So if we can start, for those who don't know, can you give me the brief mission of PEN America and what you all aim to do? Sure. So PEN America is a literary and free expression human rights organization, and it is our 100th year. Not a lot of things make it around, you know, hang around that long. No, they sure and, don't. <laughs> and, and our mission is to unite writers and their allies. We celebrate creative expression and we defend the liberties that make it possible. Our organization is part of an affiliated network of pen centers in countries around the world where we do work on international human rights and defending free expression, particularly for writers in numerous countries. And in the United States, our work and profile have been expanding in um, the past 10 years or or so, really focusing on threats to democracy and freedom of expression here at home. Mm -hmm. And my particular portfolio at Penn oversees our work as it impacts and connects with schools, colleges, and universities. How long have you been doing that? 
This is my fourth year anniversary in this role. Oh, wow. Well, happy anniversary. Thank you. <laughs> do you enjoy it? I do. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's nice to have a job that is never boring, but indeed, you know, there are substantive challenges intellectually in doing this work that keep you on your toes. You know, there's always a new freedom of expression issue that you can learn about and think about a new context, a new set of facts. It's been really interesting for me to do work that intersects with interests in the arts and international human rights and First Amendment law. I mean, that's a fascinating intersection. And I'm a huge, huge proponent of just learning, knowledge, public education. And I feel like right now in the United States, our work that uh, to shore up public education, the work of teachers, the work of librarians, the work of professors is so necessary and really quite fulfilling. Oh, I love that. I couldn't agree more. Our public school teachers are so in need of that backup and support, it's critical right now. And we're seeing so many people leaving as a result of not having that. So I'm so glad that your organization is part of of creating that for them. So your official title, you're the Director of Free Expression and Education Programs. And I wanted to start because I was reading on Penn's website, you guys had reproduced a letter that you sent to the Burbank United School District in the end of March. Yeah. And I thought that was a really good place to start in terms of maybe the ways that you're engaging with some of these school districts and some of these places we're seeing banned books. And so for people who don't know, they prohibited any materials with the N-word from being used as mandatory reading in any grade level. So that was their new approach, correct? That was their new approach in okay. this in 2021. Mm-hmm. What had happened there in Burbank is there was a complaint in response to some kind of hateful incident with a student being called the N-word, really okay. something just atrocious. Yes. And in response to that, though, the answer from the district at first was to remove a number of books. They said at the time it was maybe going to be temporary, but then instead it went in the other direction, which is that the removal of those books precipitated a new policy which was that mandating that the new policy, which prohibits, as you said, making any kind of material with the N-word in it mandatory for student reading. Now, this issue is controversial and it is complicated, but what was really interesting for for us and what brought the case to our attention actually was the advocacy of students at Burbank High School, the Black Students Union, who talked about how banning all books with the N-word in this way from being mandatory reading in classes was essentially doing a disservice to Black authors and Black students in particular, who are already a minority in the district. And so this is an example, you know, people talk right now, there's no question that 2021 and 2022, the overwhelming impetus around the country right now around book banning has been from more conservative groups. But this is a case that originated more from the left, from uh, groups with a more progressive orientation. Hmm. But nonetheless, the, the impact or the result is really the same in that people are being restricted from being able to read. Now, there are all kinds of ways in which we can also draw key differences between this, right? One is an effort that is concerned about protecting people from, you know, historic stereotypes and ethnic slurs. And for those of you and and us who believe in, you know, a future of a diverse, inclusive democracy, we do need to have 
ways of reckoning and educating and teaching people about these things. But I, I, I believe that it's problematic when we go so far as to say that we have to prohibit things entirely from being read. And as the students in the Black Student Union pointed out, this kind of ban, uh, prohibition, basically means that you can't have a student class read I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou. You can't have them read The Letter from Birmingham Jail by Martin Luther King, James Baldwin, Toni Morrison, the, the list goes on. Right. You know what? Um, and so that is where this kind of blanket policy is so concerning, even though, you know, this case in particular in Burbank does stand out and go against the tide of what we have been seeing all over the country in the past year. Mm, that makes complete sense. I really like what you wrote in the letter where you said, we believe professional educators are well-equipped to guide students in reading books that may contain challenging or potentially distressing content, and that reckoning with books that depict the complexities of history and modern society is part of the purpose of an education. I thought that was so perfectly expressed because there is a lot of this argument against discomfort or against, you know, we don't want to make anyone upset and that seems, it's it's tricky because at first, of course, I'm not really in the business of making elementary schoolers or really any students upset, but obviously that's part of what they encounter in their life and that friction is necessary for their growth. So I really, that discomfort preceding conversation, it sounds like anything that is a policy that, that really halts everything in its tracks is counterproductive. I mean, I think the the key to all of these situations, whether we're talking about people who want to control education and what people can read from the right or from the left, mm -hmm. is to understand that the answer can't be blanket bans and prohibitions. The answer has to be, if you think about it, the opposite, reading, discussion, engagement, understanding, listening. Maybe it doesn't reach understanding. Maybe some of our differences can't be, you know, overcome. Yes. But, but we have to really push back against, I think, these blanket decisions. Now, in that case, maybe you have a curriculum committee. You have a group of teachers or librarians who get together and who are exercising their professional discretion or curating materials for the library or just setting curriculum, but and they decide to no longer teach something. You know, right. maybe they don't want to teach a book, and maybe that book has that word in it, and maybe something has happened in the district to precipitate that decision. But if if the decision is being made with a range of considerations in mind by those who do engage in education, that is one thing. But where it's a situation where a group from outside the school mm. demands that this you know, something happened around this material and therefore nobody should be allowed to use it in X or, or Y ways anymore. That's where we just, you know, impinge upon the space for creativity and the space for curiosity in schools. Yes. Um, and, you know, and the answer might mean in that case with the N-word, better training, better education, better preparation for how something is taught, more support. But I do worry about the answer being, and as as the students there in the district said it best, you know, that the, that there would be prevented from finding those materials at all. Yes, that really makes sense because it is, it is tempting to want to have a simple answer either way. And that's just not what exists, that you need to have those sorts of nuanced conversations and supports around it that, that really makes sense for the best outcome for that particular situation. Yeah, no, exactly. 
I've got a question for you. You said, uh, so to that end, I know you mentioned in another interview that one of the trends we're seeing post-pandemic is a decreased tolerance for resolving controversy and mediating disputes. And I couldn't agree more, right? That was just so on point. But in 2021, you guys had developed a pilot program and it was called the Commitment to Open and Respectful Classroom Exchange. Can you tell me about it? Yeah, so this was a program for faculty in particular that we developed. Many college campuses have been sites of significant friction around the question of how people talk to one another. And I really think that in that we have to think about the classroom context and the campus context of higher education very carefully. But it's it's a setting where we need to really think about two things. And I we, we really try to reflect that in what we call this series, which is that classrooms have to remain open and mm-hmm. that they ought to remain also respectful. And so that doesn't mean we can't broach certain topics and we can't you know, there are whole, you know, books we can't read, etc. But that means that we engage with them in a way that is respectful of each other, but also open to a diverse range of experiences and opinions. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the times what people complain about on college campuses essentially that is that one of these two things isn't being met. That either they're being disrespected, disparaged, you know, experiencing hate or either experiences of, frankly, marginalization because of who they are, or they're experiencing intellectually a sense that, you know, classrooms are closed. They feel they can't raise certain topics. They can't ask a question of the professor. And so I think in this climate, particularly with rising polarization, we have to find some way to equip professors to better encourage and facilitate these kinds of conversations in their classrooms. And that was the the goal of that program and our trainings for campuses, which we also continue to do. And how do those train, how do you set those up? Do you guys go with the, or work with the university administration on something like that? Or how does that happen? How do people access that? Yeah, normally the way that we do that is with administrations. In some cases, we have run them virtually ourselves as a kind of one-off opt-in. But normally, yes, we're doing it through targeted visits to particular campuses around the country with either you know our full-time personnel or some consultants that we work with who are experts in you know First Amendment, free speech, difficult dialogues, uh, that etc. Mm. I love that there's that sensitivity to it and that you all are providing that scaffolding because it's so necessary for educators, especially as we enter these times now where we're having a lot more potential for litigation. I know that's scary for educators, even for me, and I live in California, so I don't feel that threatened right now. But what should we be paying attention to, to right now with just things that are happening around the country? What do you find is the most most urgent in your mind? There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. 
For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah, what I think is the most alarming really is the censorious climate that is setting in around schools, libraries, and universities. You know, when we think of these knowledge institutions where people ought to be able to read freely and and think freely and, and talk freely, where all of that is being chipped away at. And so, you know, what we have seen in the past two years now is a massive spike in what we have called educational gag orders, which are bills designed to restrict what it is that teachers can talk about or the curriculum that they can teach in the classroom. And now on top of that, we have seen the rise in efforts to ban books around the country, remove them from schools and particularly from school libraries, whole cloth. And so as both of those tracks move forward, they are also increasingly borrowing ideas from one another. So now we have bills that propose to regulate libraries in new ways. You know, there's tremendous amount of creativity among those who want to engage in censorship and control of schools. And so what does this do in the country? I mean, there are many places where bills are passing and becoming law and many more where they're being proposed, but where politicians are taking the opportunity to send threatening letters or engage in kinds of intimidation of schools and teachers and administrators. And so what does this do is it means that even if there is no law, even if there is no one complaining and you are holding in your hands as a teacher a book that you know someone might complain about, Mm -hmm. well, you're going to be probably more inclined to not put it out on the shelf, to not teach it that way this year, to change your lesson if it might push students. And so what we're doing across the board, whether we're talking about curriculum or talking about books, whether we're talking about classroom libraries or school libraries, is that everybody has a mind to now, instead of push students to wrestle with, you know, the the incredible difficulty of America's past or even some of the aspects of persistent discrimination and inequality or to consider and encompass the true range of LGBTQ identities, which are now clamoring to be heard and seen in society. You know, all of that becomes an opportunity to just turn away, to go back to uh, however it was that things were taught in the past instead of pushing us to greater understanding because it makes some uncomfortable and because those who are uncomfortable are now increasingly trying to wield a bully pulpit or the power of the state against them. And so what we need to do right now is reaffirm our commitments to our public education and reaffirm our support of the professional discretion of those who have sought out careers in education because what we are seeing are really alarming trends that, for example, a national teacher shortage or, you know, reluctance of people who want to go into that career because they could see how it has become politicized and uh, how teachers are becoming, you know, stories in the news that and, and experiencing harassment or other negative blowback against them. And so those are, you know, some of the negative impacts of this moment. And I fear that even though a bill might not pass or even though a bill, a book might not be banned, the climate is still where we're seeing this toxic attitude setting in. So what would you say as citizens and readers, what should we be paying attention to? Yeah, I think this is about renewing our sense of democratic and civic commitment and Mm. that the 
you know, answer in response to this isn't to feel powerless that books yeah. are being banned and there's nothing you could do. You can do something. Go to your local school board meeting. Reach out to a local librarian, particularly if you live in part of the country where you've seen these attacks and efforts to undermine their work. Human support and connection with people is powerful and can really be very affirming. But also at school board meetings, I think part of why this effort to remove books in schools has gotten so much momentum behind it is because it never really met either A, serious civic organized opposition, or mm -hmm. B, school board members who could respond by saying, well, we understand that you don't like these books, but our duty is to serve a diverse public. And there are other members of our community who do want the mayor, who, you know, parents who do want their children to learn about, you know, diverse identities. And so in the absence of both of those, we have seen this rampant effort to remove books from schools gain tremendous steam. And I do think that even though it might not always work to organize local pushback that in a lot of cases that can make the difference and young people in particular are in a unique position right now where they might be able to speak out more than the adults more than the teachers and more than the librarians uh, and more than others who who have fears about what might happen to them but young people who are clamoring to read this literature have an important voice and it needs to be heard Mm. And it sounds like that was what happened in Burbank, that there was that mobilization of the students that really brought it to your attention. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. And I think that the and in many places, you know, yeah. students have have organized to go to school board meetings to oppose the banning of books. And, you know, in some cases you have situations where you had one student go alone the first time, you know, nervous and unsure. And then you know, start to see actually there were allies in their community and there were other people who also thought that removing books just because some adults didn't want high school students reading them was a problem. Yes. Why is this something that everyone should be concerned about? Well, I think this impacts everyone, um, mm -hmm. even if you don't have children, even if yes. you are, your children are grown or whatever. This is about our democracy. This is about public education. It's about fundamental guarantees that we have made to young people in the United States, which is that you have a right to, you know, in, in theory, be educated, be informed about the world. And so what we, we need to realize and wake up to is that in other countries where we have seen things that are happening right now in the United States, those are countries that verge on or are authoritarian places. Mm -hmm. You know, that's when you say, well, where else have they banned books like this? Where else have there been efforts to commandeer the state to prohibit topics from being taught in schools? And the list is not, you know, Western democracies. No. And so I understand really, that being a parent means you want a voice in your child's education. It means you are particularly connected to public schools. And there are many cases where our public schools, you know, might be not receiving enough funds or might, you know, need, you know, community engagement. And that's a great thing. But this right now is making it, I think, even harder for teachers and parents to work together and talk together. And it's when parents are most involved in their students' education that students do thrive yes. when young people learn the best. And so parents have a role here, but what we have to not sacrifice in the meantime is those core commitments to our democracy. And you know, as I said before, being in a diverse society doesn't mean we're always all going to agree, but we're going to agree about some fundamental principles of freedom of expression 
civil liberties and the freedom to read, our intellectual freedom. And that is what is being chipped away at. And if you chip away that for the young rising generation, well, then that is chipping away at our future. And that is why this ought to concern everybody. Yeah, that is perfectly put. You couldn't have said it better. I appreciate that. What are some of your favorite books? Oh my gosh. The list is too long, but I can okay. tell you about books, books I read that I think, you know, sometimes are seen as controversial. And Ooh, one sure. of them is, you know, Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, which is one of the books in the Burbank case. Yes, uh, it's a book about a black family in 1930s Mississippi, written by Mildred Taylor. And the book provides an understanding of what it might have been like to be a family in that context that is really quite removed and not reflected in a great deal of contemporary media. We're talking about the Jim Crow South. We're talking about post-Civil War. We're talking about Mississippi. It's a fascinating, evocative story that is you know, a page turner. It's hard to ignore, and it is accessible to young people. Catch twenty two, mm. you know, a book that you know criticizes war through humor and absurdity, is the most incredible book to read. To to sort of, it's hard to read that book and then come away from it thinking that war is a good answer to things in the world, and that is a danger. As you know, this you could say similar for works by Kurt Vonnegut, which have also been historically targeted. Mm -hmm. And you know, I would be remiss uh, not to talk about some of the books now that are reflective of a rising generation or risen generation now that want to talk more honestly and openly about LGBTQ youth experiences. Mm -hmm. And they are books increasingly that are being written by people as adults to write the books that they wanted to see on the shelves when they were younger. If you look at All Boys Aren't Blue by George Johnson, and they talk about that book, what they say is they wrote it because that book didn't exist on the shelf. And now that mm -hmm. book has become one of the most frequently targeted. And it's a story of upbringing, but it's a story of Black queer upbringing that is incredibly relatable, very human. It allows you to see and imagine what it was like to be that person in that particular place and time in, you know, New Jersey in the 19, you know, 80s and 1990s. Mm -hmm. And it really paints an incredible picture of that time. And it's so sad to think that a book being written to be available to young people is now being stopped from being so. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate that perspective on that. And you, those are all such good titles. And I feel like, you know, we talk about books being windows or mirrors, but the reality of a window into somebody else's life, there's still that reflective point. You're always going to find a point of connection within their story that is part of yours as well. So I love that, that your organization is focused on that. So for Banned Books Week, any big plans that people need to know about? Yes, we have a number of events this week that okay. people can attend, uh, some in person in different cities and some virtually. We're also part of the Banned Books Week Coalition, which is sponsoring its own set of events as well. Also this week, we are asking people to use the hashtag FreeTheBooks and join us online in standing up for the freedom to read. Uh, there are ways to get involved. There are ways to learn about these issues. And we have a new report that came out this week, which details 
details the shocking rise of book banning and the growing movement behind it to censor what's available in U.S. schools. And I encourage uh, your followers to check it out. And we're at at Pan America. Perfect. Hashtag free the books. I love it. And I will say that I interviewed another author today and I was telling her that I was going to speak to you later. And she said, oh, I love Pan America. She said, thank them for the work they're doing. So you are appreciated among authors and librarians and so many people because it is such a key conversation. So thanks for the time today and for your perspective. It's really valuable. Thank you so much for having me here. My pleasure. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Ask a Librarian. As always, it's my joy to share and learn with you. You can follow me on Instagram at Julie Writes Words, or you can go to my website, juliewritewords.com. There you'll find the show notes, including all the books mentioned in the episode. See you in the stacks next week. And until then, friends, never go anywhere without a book. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.